Well, good morning. Y'all okay? All right. So take, normally I say take your Bibles, do that. But uh, actually, I want you to take the menu that you received when you got here. Uh, this is, happens to be the menu that says different opportunities that you can plug into. But at the top of it, there is a statement just underneath where it says CBC Messenger. It is our vision statement here, stated as if we have achieved it. It is that to which we work. And it says, Crestwood, a connected community that produces disciples who gather regularly for vibrant worship, dispersing into the communities of Southeast Texas and beyond, sharing life. Question. What would it take for us to fail in achieving that? What would it take for us to fail in pulling off what we say we're trying to accomplish? Let me turn that to a little different vantage point. On Thursday of this week, I went in to my dentist and she extracted the two remaining wisdom teeth that I had. I am fully without wisdom now. <laughs> I had my previous two uh, extracted, or the, the other two I had extracted previously, 31 years ago. It was such an incredible experience. I couldn't wait to get these done. So I went in to do it. Here's, let, let's take my question for us as a church and put it on to my dentist. If I had gone in for the spin-up to the removal of the wisdom teeth appointment, and in that previous appointment where they do all the x-rays and all that kind of stuff, if my dentist had said to me, you know, Mr. Rotrammel, um, we have, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of struggling financially here, and we can't really afford to sanitize all of our equipment. And so we found that we use these implements in your mouth uh, if we save money if we don't clean them from the previous patient and we use them, we found we can stretch it out. We use them until they break so we don't have to spend so much money on cleaning. Would you go back to that dentist to have them stick those instruments in your mouth? No. So, see, here's what I want you to get from that. It's possible to say this is what we're after. This is what we're in business for, if you will, from a dentist standpoint. This is what we're hoping to achieve, but we can do things and adopt opinions or practices that totally undercut what we say we're about. So what would it take for us to fail at being a connected community that pre, uh, produces disciples who gather regularly for vibrant worship and disperse into the communities of Southeast Texas and beyond sharing life. Which pushes me to our summer series that we bring to a halt today. All summer long, I've been trying to raise to our awareness some of those key values or pillars, as we've called them, that as we adopt those and pull them in and put them to work, create a culture here that helps us be who God called us to be and to do and accomplish what God called us to accomplish. But it's very possible 
that if we miss any of those or we reject all of those, that the culture that we live in here inside our church undercuts our ability to pull off what we're about. And so these values are pillars, as we've said. We've looked at seven of them so far. Uh, Today we're going to get number eight and number nine, and then next week we'll be on to something else. But these pillars, values, help us to get it right. And so today's, very simply stated, and you'll hear me say it a number of times, but the value that we emphasize today is simply this, make it better. Even if you think it's already great, make it better. In other words, we move to have this value at place, in place here, at work here, that says when we come to do what we do as a church, we always want to be improving. We don't want to just settle back and say, oh yeah, well, it'll do. And churches struggle with that. I was listening today, or not today, but this week earlier, uh, about a guy talking about a church where he had served at one point and, and they somewhere in their past decided, well, what we're doing now is perfect, so we'll just settle in. And 20 years later, they were trying to sell the building because the church died. We must always be about that point of reference that says we're going to make it better. No matter how good it is, even if we think it's already great, we still want to make it better. So I'm going to take you a couple of different places today, and we're going to look at three different ways that I think this applies to us. So more of a topical sermon, so I'm going to give you several different passages of Scripture. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 25. The first couple of these passages will be Old Testament. We'll get over into the book of 1 Corinthians before it's over. But we start today uh, in Exodus 25. And as we go, here's the first application. The pillar, the value is we want to make it better, always make it better. And we, uh, we first apply that onto our facilities as a church. And I know that sounds like a weird place to start. I mean, after all, the reality is that probably in this room, the majority of us come to church and we give, if we give any thought at all to the facilities, it's a passing thought. I, I su- suspect that if we went two or three weeks without air conditioning here, we would be thinking about facilities much more than what we normally do in August. So let's talk about it a little bit. And we go first to Exodus 25. And let me set the stage for you of this particular Passage. The children of Israel have exited Egypt with great fanfare. As they left after 450 years or so of slavery, God delivers them out of the hand of the Egyptians and they begin to make their way out into the wilderness and we know the story of the crossing of the Red Sea and we know that they get across and so then there's the whole manna and quail thing and all of those kind of things but somewhere in the midst of that they find themselves at this holy mountain, Mount Sinai. And it's at that place that God meets with Moses and he lays down the law in the truest sense of the word. And he begins to give out to Moses who then pushes it out to the people. This is what God says as to how we will relate with him. And in 25, chapter 25 of Exodus, in that giving of the law, we find the turn now to where God says to Moses, okay, I want you to start working on a place. It's a movable place. It's a tabernacle. It's the place 
that will represent my presence with you as a people. And here's what it's supposed to look like. And specifically in these first nine verses of Exodus 25, here's what it consists of. And as I read through this, I want you to listen for a couple of key construction components. Listen for how God says there to you use cardboard. Listen to how many times God says, I want you to use fake stones, gems, if you will. Listen to the extravagance of what God lays out. The Lord said to Moses, verse 2, speak to the people of Israel that they may uh, take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And let me just stop to say, usually when a preacher takes this passage, it's because he's trying to drum up more offerings, right? That's not what this is about. If you're hearing this saying he's trying to get my money, that is not the case here. I want you to listen with a different set of ears, a different perspective today. I want you to listen to the extravagance that God asks for from them. By the way, the way they had this stuff, It's because they had looted the Egyptians in a way that only God could pull off when they left. They were a bunch of slave people. They didn't have the stuff that we're going to hear here, but God saw to it that it was there. There's a great principle there, another sermon. Verse 3, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze. Let me stop for a second and just say it's at this point of the service that while I'm preaching through this, we're going to have our ushers pass the plate and we want your rings that are made of gold, silver, and bronze. Not so. Verse 4. Not only gold, silver, and bronze, but also blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And with that, God says, we are going to make a home for me, a traveling home for me. It would be the representation of God with the children of Israel until the temple would be built years and years and years later. And God did not say, use the cheapest materials you could find. It's actually quite the opposite. God said all of those treasures that I saw to it that you had with you when you left Egypt that were not yours, you did not earn them, they were strictly what I gave to you, those valuables now are to be used to make my house. Let me just stop for a second and underscore this truth. When we say make it better as it relates to our facilities, what we're saying with that is that as a church, we recognize that the way we handle our facilities, our properties, is a reflection on what we think about the worthiness of God. Now, I I know that that's a stretch because typically it's the facilities and the uh, property that we're talking about here that most of us just don't even think about much at all. And then on top of that, we fight this because most of us are cheap. No, wait a minute, wrong word. Uh, Frugal. That we start thinking, okay, we're going to do the very least amount that we can get or get by with so that we can save money. 
Okay, now I'm, I'm a little torn here, okay, because I get that. I'm not for extravagant. Speaking of extravagant, I used to watch every once in a while I'd flip on the television and watch the TBN stuff. That's not TBS, TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network. I stopped watching it because Teresa told me that I, sh- I was not old enough to watch that. Because every time I watched it, I just got angry. And one of the reasons that I got angry is because of some of the opulence that came at me from t- You ever watch that? I don't know if it's this way now. Some of you have watched it now. You can tell me if you want. I don't really need to know, but it's okay. Uh, in the old days, I used to watch it. And they would have this white-haired dude and this big-haired lady. And they were sitting on furniture that looked like were thrown up, regurgitated out of a gold mine. I mean, gilded and fancy. You know what? I'm not picking at them. I know it sounds like I am. I, 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 you know, at least I think what they were trying to do with that was the principle that I'm talking about here. But this calls for balance, right? Um, I think one of the things we have to really be aware of is that we can so cheap something in the name of saving a dime that we communicate to a group of people outside the walls of this church that God's really not that big a deal to us. He's really not that important. Certainly, God is only worth plywood rather than acacia wood. It calls for balance. It calls for insight. It calls for us being smart with God's money. But let's be careful that we don't communicate something that, while it says frugal, also communicates that God's not important. After all, where do you suppose the creator of the universe ought to live. If he chooses to say this is his house, and we're all smart enough to know this is not where God resides, but we also believe that this is where God regularly frequents. How often do we, in the way we treat our facilities and our properties, essentially say, God, you're really not important enough for us to do it right? Another passage maybe hits on this a little bit. It's in 2 Chronicles. This is chapter 34. This is the story of young Josiah, the king who was just a child when he came into power. By this time, the children of Israel had developed their own uh, land and they had had kings and then they had split the, um, between the north and the south. And this young king comes and he takes over and this idea of making it better as it relates to the facilities kicks in in Second Chronicles chapter 34, beginning in verse 8. And it says this, now in the 18th year of his reign, by this time Josiah would have been a whopping old 26 years of age. When he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Masiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joaz, the recorder to repair the house of the Lord is God. You see, what had happened was not only had the land fallen into disrepair in their worship, the temple, the house of God, 
had fallen into disrepair. They chose not to make it better on a daily basis. Verse 9, they came to Hilkiah the high priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keeper of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and all of the remnant of, the, of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen made it better. Well, that's not the way it says it exactly. The second part of verse 10. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. And they gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And together they all, this is me talking now, and together they all made it better. What does the presentation of the facilities and property at Crestwood say to people about how we view God? So here's my desire, my vision, if you will, that Crestwood would be a place where those of you who are artists would be free to step forward and say, you know what, that wall, well, I call it a wall, artists call it a canvas, That we would find those people who would have the expression here to be able to step forward and go, you know what, we can do some things better. It's not that we necessarily think they're bad. It's not that they're necessarily horrible. It's just that we can do better. In the programming that we have, and I'm talking about facilities now, but in the way we do the things that we do, have that attitude, always have that attitude that says we will always be about trying to make it better. Otherwise, we may turn around in 10 years and find that because we chose not to make it better, we chose not to make it anything. I find it interesting that in churches that I've served through the years and people that I've known in other churches, that people put up with shoddy stuff at church, they would never put up with that in their own homes. And the basis of this is that we do this as a reflection of God himself. So let me play this out. Maybe some of you are in what I'm about to explain here today. I had it in my notes long before you showed up today, so let me just give you that disclaimer. You know, coming from either direction to this church down Highway 69, the first thing you see about our church is a lighted sign out there. And you can see it easily from a mile in either direction, and I think it's probably further than that if it's at night. So from the time people see that to the time they step into the doors here, what is the visible presentation of Crestwood Baptist Church? Do we communicate God is alive here and these people do what they do as a reflection of what they think about him? Or do we just make it okay? So the value is make it better always. Make it better even if you think it's great. Make it better. And that applies to something as simple as our facilities. But it's not limited to our facilities. We also should make it better as it relates to the product we might use the term cultus 
here. It's the way we do worship. All, all those components and all the little pieces that come together for us to do what we do. Always we should be making that better. In other words, if you come to this church looking for a way that people did church 40 years ago, under God, I hope that you would never find that here. Because we're always making it better. And new doesn't mean better. Better makes it better. Let's look at this again, a passage of scripture that'll help you. Uh, I had you in Exodus, I mean, Second Chronicles a little while ago. So let's go back to Second Chronicles and look at the first seven verses of that passage. We started in verse eight earlier. That's where Josiah issued the directive. So, okay, so let's repair the house of God. Now we come to the first part of it where Josiah becomes king and he inherits a country, a people that have long since left God behind. Verse 1, 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 34. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, he's 16 by now, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. In Old Testament terminology, high places is code speak for places of idolatry. So he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali and the ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem, having made it better as the way they did church. You see, a lack of attention to what's going on is a sure way to settle into the status quo. And for those people at that time, the unthinkable of all unthinkables would be that they would have forgotten God who delivered them so many years ago out of slavery and he made them a people. But yet, yet that's exactly what they did. They forgot him and they began to be just like everybody around them. A failure to be attention to the detail of how we do church today almost ensures that we do it wrong tomorrow. So we always need to be about making it better. We always need to be about the process of evaluating and looking and saying this needs to be done at a high level. So we go now to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And in verse 31, I know you don't have time to, read, to get there, so let me just read it for you very quickly and fill in the blanks for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is a passage now, this verse comes as a summary of an argument 
It's really an answer, if you will, that Paul gives. It's an extended argument because this sick Corinthian church, these house churches that were there, were getting nearly everything wrong about how they did church, the product, if you will. And so one of the issues that they had was this division that was going on in the church about people who were eating meat that had previously been sacrificed to idols. And so he has this long discussion, and you can go back and read that several chapters backwards, getting to this. This is the culmination of Paul's entire presentation and argument on that. And at the end of it all, he says, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, here's the guiding principle. Do it to the glory of God. In other words, let that be the filter through which we run everything. As we talk about doing it better, making it better here, the reason that we do that is because we seek to honor God in everything that we do. So the question, I I guess, that, that follows hard on the heels of that is, so does God deserve a mediocre response from his people or does he deserve the very best that we have to offer? Now we talk a lot, preachers do, we talk a lot about giving your best when we're trying to get money from people. I'm not talking about your money here. I'm talking about the product that we as a church put out there. Shouldn't we be satisfied with giving it just kind of a passing glance and say, well, you know, that'll do. Or does God deserve our best. I guess I would say it this way. There is no room in the Christian life for half-hearted work. Let me put it this way. Yesterday, uh, you know, after my Thursday uh, dental stuff, and Friday was its own special gift because of some of the medications and stuff, the anesthesia they gave me. So Friday was like a wash. But yesterday, when I woke up yesterday morning, Teresa had a list of things that we had to get done. And uh, we, meaning I had to drive and she did it. So, um, so I, I found myself in Beaumont and with one of those driving needs for coffee. And not just any coffee. I, I don't... I like sludge for coffee, all right? It's thick enough that if you put a spoon in it, it just stands up. Um, so I went to one of my coffee places, and uh, as I love it when secular people have no idea that I'm a preacher, much less what I'm preaching, give me the perfect illustration for what I'm saying. And that happened yesterday. So we find ourselves in this coffee joint, and... Uh, you know, it's four bucks. You know which one I'm talking about. So, um, and so I get a, this thing of coffee, and so I just down it. I mean, just like, whoosh. and I look at the guy, and he's probably 22, 23 years old, and I say to him, that's the best coffee, cup of coffee I've had all day. And his response to me is perfect for this sermon. Well, okay, wait a minute. I got I to gotta clean it up. Because I'm pretty sure this guy wasn't a Christian. At least the way he was talking was probably not church language. So he said, I don't do, <laughs> I don't do anything half, oh, I'll say hearted, okay? <laughs> this is a cup of coffee. It's a cup of coffee. And I'm just trying to be nice to the guy making conversation. I don't do anything half hearted. And I think to myself, I wonder how many churches have adopted that attitude. 
I wonder if our church has adopted that attitude that we don't do anything when it comes to doing church and being the church. We don't do it half-hearted at all. I, I think maybe the question we push forward at this point is, are all facets of Crestwood life trying to be excellent? Today's our committee meeting day. This is the last day that we'll meet committees for the whole year's worth of meetings with those committees. We'll elect the new committees tonight. So let me ask you, if you're a committee member, whether you're outgoing or you'll carry over to the next year, would you say that you and your committee achieved excellence this year? Or was it just a matter of well, we'll get done what we can. I want to say that this is one of those things that we have to come back to. It's not based on how tired we are. It's not based on how busy we are. The approach that we take to handle the business of God as his people is a direct reflection of how we see him. And if he really is God, he deserves our best. Make it better. Always make it better. Even if you think it's great, make it better. Because God deserves that. So the last level that we see this, and I'll be done with this. We make it better on a personal level. You see, you can't really talk about doing it better on a corporate level in a volunteer organization like ours unless we say we've got to have to make it better on a personal level. So what is your part of Crestwood life? You know, this is the time of the year when teams and teamwork rises to our awareness you know, at a very high level because the NFL is about to start. By the way, you heard Tony Romo's back in the hospital, that is. Um, that was a meme I saw. I thought that was the best. Uh, but we have... Football teams, we have guys in our church who play football for various schools. Uh, we have cheerleaders. Uh, we, we have NFL. You know, we have volleyball going on. We have band that functions that way. You know, the reality is this is a time of the year when teamwork seems to rise to the surface. And we spent for two weeks uh, hailing the accomplishments of the individual, Michael Phelps and Hussein Bolt and those guys. But uh, now, now teams take front and center. Paul talks about that in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's after where we are here in chapter 10 right now, but Paul will come and he'll use the analogy not of a team, but of a body. And his point in that is that every individual member of the church of Jesus Christ is a piece of that body. But we, he goes on to say that the, no individual piece is any more important than any other piece, but the value of that body comes when it all functions together. And so Paul will say to us as he talks about spiritual gifts that each of you, each of us, has a particular piece of church life that is ours, uniquely ours. And if I'll take Paul's lesson and take it a step further to say that if any individual member of the body, that's us individually, if any individual member doesn't function 
to its calling, the body suffers. But when individual members take the principle we're talking about here and this value that says it will always make it better and on a personal level, you decide I will make it better from my side of things. I will be better. Then that honors the body. It honors God. It enhances the body's work. You know, I look backwards on my own life in athletics or other areas of life. I had plenty of those coaches or teachers who were the jump down your throat and try to intimidate you into positive behavior. But the ones that I learned the most from were the ones who would pull me aside in one way or another and say, man, you can do better than that. You can do better. And I found that when I did better, the team was better. That's the picture that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians as we move forward. But having said that, I come back now to a couple of the guys that I, these are some of my favorite guys in the entire Old Testament. When we were in the process of having our children, I tried to get Teresa to let me name one of our kids one of these two guys' names. She wouldn't do it. She's very narrow-minded about biblical names. And so in Exodus chapter 31, the first seven verses... We have the story of Bezalel and Oholiab. Tell me Oholiab's not a great name for a kid. The toughest kid in school, I'll guarantee it. Verse 31, I mean, chapter 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, now, okay, so let me catch you up. The instructions for the tabernacle have been given. And I'm sure, from a leader's standpoint, I'm sure that Moses must have looked at that pile of gold and stuff whether it was already collected or not. And he must have thought, now what am I going to do with that? You know the quickest way to settle for status quo and less than excellence in our facilities here is putting me in charge of them. All the taste that I have is in my mouth. You don't want me picking paint colors. I can't fix stuff like some of these guys who are Bezalel and Oloholiabs in their own right here. So Moses is given one of those Uh, Well, I guess I would call them early general contractors. When God says, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze. Well, what a coincidence. They just happen to have some of that. In cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. Behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men uh, ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And then he lists those out. I'll stop reading there to say this. God said... I want you to build this stuff, but I'm going to give you the people who can take that stuff and make it better. See, we don't get better as a church unless you get better. And so I'm asking you, and I'm not saying that you're bad, okay? The the whole value here is make it better, even if you think it's great. Make it better. There's always room for that kind of improvement. We all can be 
better. So make it better. And God gives you specific abilities that if you don't function in them in this church, we're not better. But when you do, we're a lot better. You know, I know that there are people who come to church, and I get this, and please understand, all of this is, is... given in the, in the sense of let's go places God, we, we, that God calls us to that we never dreamed is possible, right? So here's one of the things that I want to keep throwing out there. Uh, I said it in the early service and I got a few looks like, ooh, I can't believe you just said that. Okay, A lot of people come to church and they just intend to sit down and essentially hold a chair down. Okay, We have devices that will hold the chairs down for us. We need you to work. We don't need you to work only. You also need you to work because God has given you specific things and there's a place in this church for you. But here's, here's where we get the caveat, right? It's a warning for us. It pushes me to the final of these pillars. The final one is the process is just as important as the product. Because what we get to this, the way these two play off each other is some of us are so type A driven personalities and we hear a message like this and it will be, whoa, 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 let's go, whoa, and get out of the way. But the reality is the process is about people. This is a people thing. And so how we get better matters. We start pulling all of these values together. People matter. So we need to treat them like they do. And we always want to be getting better. And in getting better, we don't want to step on somebody along the way and kill their following of Jesus. And so we have to say, okay, how do we do this? The process that we go about this matters. So we have to figure out how do we pull it off. I close with the words of an old hymn. It's not even in the hymn book that we use in the other building. But I remember it as a child. The lyrics are this. No, I will not sing it. You are safe. The lyrics are, Hear ye the master's call. Give me thy best. For be it great or small, that is his test. Our talents may be few and these may be small. But unto him is due our best, our all. Are you doing your best for God? As a church, are we making this better? Let's pray. And as we pray, here's the invitation to you. Somewhere in all of this, God has a message for each of us. Maybe that message is, you know what? You could be doing more. I want you to do more. I want you to change your perspective and stop settling for status quo and start moving towards better. If that's the case, then that's between you and God. You can make a decision sitting right there where you are to turn. Today becomes a turning point for you. It may be that some of you are out there hearing this going, you know what? I should join this church because I want to help make this church better then come on, we'll talk to you about how you can do that. Whatever the case is, where's God in your life and are you treating him as if he's worth your best? 
Father, we ask you to take this time and change lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.